0: section thirty of fabiola by nicholas patrick cardinal wiseman this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by maria therese part second conflict chapter eleven the virgins preum Pavza bet pretioso honorum pulla virgo xii ancilla de et xpi fl vincencio et fravito p c cons. If the learned Thomasinus had known this lately discovered inscription, when he proved, with such abundance of learning, that virginity could be professed in the early church, at the age of twelve, he would certainly have quoted it, but can we doubt that the girl who was a virgin of only twelve years old, a handmaid of God and Christ, was such by consecration to God? Otherwise, the more tender her age, the less wonderful her state of maidenhood but although this the nubile age according to roman law was the one at which such dedication to god was permitted by the church she reserved to a maturer period that more solemn consecration when the veil of virginity was given by the bishop generally on easter sunday that first act probably consisted of nothing more than receiving from the hands of parents a plain dark dress but when any danger threatened the church permitted the anticipation by many years of that period and fortify the spouses of christ in their holy purpose by her more solemn blessing a persecution of the most savage character was on the point of breaking out which would not spare the most tender of the flock and it was no wonder that they who in their hearts had betrothed themselves to the lamb as his chaste spouses for ever should desire to come to his nuptials before death they long naturally to bear the full-grown lily entwined round the palm should this be their portion agnes had from her infancy chosen for herself this holy estate, the superhuman wisdom which had never exhibited itself in her words and actions blending so gracefully with the simplicity of an innocent and guileless childhood rendered her ripe beyond her years for any measure of indulgence which could be granted to hearts that panted for their chaste bridal hour she eagerly seized on the claim that coming danger gave her to a more than usual relaxation of that law which prescribed a delay of more than ten years in the fulfilling of her desire. Another postulant joined her in this petition. We may easily imagine that a holy friendship had been growing between her and Syra from the first interview which we have described between them. This feeling had been increased by all that Agnes had heard fabiola say in praise of her favorite servant. From this and from the slave's more modest reports, she was satisfied that the work to which she had devoted herself of her mistress's conversion, must be entirely left in her hands. It was evidently prospering, owing to the prudence and grace with which it was conducted. In her frequent visits to Fabiola, she contented herself with admiring and approving what her cousin related of Syra's conversations, but she carefully avoided every expression that could raise suspicion of any collusion between them. Syra, as a dependent, and Agnes, as a relation, had put on mourning upon Fabius's death, and hence no change of habit would raise suspicion in his daughter's mind of their having taken some secret or some joint step. Thus far they could safely ask to be admitted at once to receive the solemn consecration to perpetual virginity. Their petition was granted, but for obvious reasons was kept carefully concealed. It was only a day or two before the happy one of their spiritual nuptials that Syra told it, as a great secret, to her blind friend and so said the latter pretending to be displeased you want to keep all the good things to yourself do you call that charitable now my dear child said syria soothingly don't be offended it was necessary to keep it quite a secret and therefore i suppose for i must not even be present oh yes cecilia to be sure you may and see all that you can replied syria laughing Never mind about the seeing, but tell me, how will you be dressed? What have you to get ready? Syrah gave her an exact description of the habit and veil, their color and form. How very interesting, she said, and what have you to do? The other, amused at her unwanted curiosity, described minutely the short ceremonial. Well, now, one question more, resumed the blind girl. When and where is all this to be? You said I might come, so I must know the time and place. Sarah told her it would be at the title of pastor at daybreak on the third day from that. But what has made you so inquisitive, dearest? I never saw you so before. I am afraid you are becoming quite worldly. Never you mind, replied Cecilia. If people choose to have secrets from me, I do not see why I should not have some of my own. Sarah laughed at her affected pettishness, for she knew well the humble simplicity of the poor child's heart. They embraced affectionately and parted. Cecilia went straight to the kind Lucina, for she was a favorite in every house. No sooner was she admitted to that pious matron's presence than she flew to her, threw herself upon her bosom, and burst into tears. Lucina soothed and caressed her, and soon composed her in a few minutes she was again bright and joyous and evidently deep in conspiracy with the cheerful lady about something which delighted her when she left she was all buoyant and blithe and went to the house of agnes and the hospital of which the good priest dionysius lived she found him at home and casting herself on her knees before him talked so fervently to him that he was moved to tears and spoke kindly and consolingly to her the te deum had not yet been written but something very like it rang in the blind girl's heart as she went to her humble home. The happy morning at length arrived, and before daybreak the more solemn mysteries had been celebrated, and the body of the faithful had dispersed. Only those remained who had to take part in the more private function, or who were specially asked to witness it. These were Lucina and her son, the aged parents of Agnes, and of course Sebastian. But Sarah looked in vain for her blind friend she had evidently retired with the crowd, and the gentle slave feared she might have hurt her feelings by her reserve before their last interview. The hall was still shrouded in the dusk of a winter's twilight, although the glowing east, without, foretold a bright December day. On the altar burned perfumed tapers of large dimensions, and round it were gold and silver lamps of great value, throwing an atmosphere of mild radiance upon the sanctuary. In front of the altar was placed a chair, no less venerable than itself, now enshrined in the Vatican, the chair of Peter. On this was seated the venerable pontiff, with staff in hand and crown on head, and round him stood his ministers, scarcely less worshipful than himself. From the gloom of the chapel there came forth first the sound of sweet voices, like those of angels, chanting in soft cadence, a hymn which anticipated the sentiments soon after embodied in the Jesu Corona virginum. Then there emerged into the light of the sanctuary the procession of already consecrated virgins led by the priests and deacons who had charge of them, and in the midst of them appeared two whose dazzling white garments shone the brighter amidst their dark habits. These were the two new postulants who, as the rest defiled and formed a line on either side, were conducted each by two professed to the foot of the altar, where they knelt at the pontiff's feet their bridesmaids or sponsors stood near to assist in the function. Each, as she came, was asked solemnly what she desired, and expressed her wish to receive the veil and practice its duties under the care of those chosen guides. For, although consecrated virgins had begun to live in community before this period, yet many continued to reside at home, and persecution interfered with enclosure. Still there was a place in church boarded off for the consecrated virgins, and they often met apart for particular instruction and devotions the bishop then addressed the young aspirants in glowing and affectionate words he told them how high a call it was to lead on earth the lives of angels who neither marry nor give in marriage to tread the same chaste path to heaven which the incarnate word chose for his own mother and arrive there to be received into the pure ranks of that picked host that follows the lamb whithersoever he goeth he expatiated on the doctrine of st paul writing to the corinthians on the superiority of virginity to every other state and he feelingly described the happiness of having no love on earth but one which instead of fading opens out into immortality in heaven for bliss he observed is but the expanded flower which divine love bears on earth after this brief discourse and an examination of the candidates for this great honor the holy pontiff proceeded to bless the different portions of their religious habits by prayers probably nearly identical with those now in use, and these were put on them by the respective attendants. The new religious laid their heads upon the altar in token of their oblation of self, but in the west the hair was not cut, as it was in the east, but was always left long. A wreath of flowers was then placed upon the head of each, and though it was winter, the well guided terrace of Fabiola had been made to furnish bright and fragrant blossoms. All seemed ended. And Agnes, kneeling at the foot of the altar, was motionless in one of her radiant raptures, gazing fixedly upwards, while Syra, near her, was bowed down, sunk into the depths of her gentle humility, wondering how she should have been found worthy of so much favor. So absorbed were both in their thanksgiving that they perceived not a slight commotion through the assembly, as if something unexpected was occurring. They were aroused by the bishop repeating the question my daughter what dost thou seek when before they could look round each felt a hand seized and heard the answer returned in a voice dear to both holy father to receive the veil of consecration to jesus christ my only love on earth under the care of these two holy virgins already his happy spouses they were overwhelmed with joy and tenderness for it was the poor blind cecilia when she heard of the happiness that awaited syrah she had flown, as we have seen, to the kind Lucina, who soon consoled her by suggesting to her the possibility of obtaining a similar grace. She promised to furnish all that was necessary, only Cecilia insisted that her dress should be coarse, as became a poor beggar-girl. The priest Dionysius presented to the pontiff and obtained the grant of her prayer, and as she wished to have her two friends for sponsors, It was arranged that he should lead her up to the altar after their consecration. Cecilia, however, kept her secret. The blessings were spoken, and the habit and veil put on, when they asked her if she had brought no wreath or flowers. timidly she drew from under her garment the crown she had provided, a bare thorny branch twisted into a circle, and presented it, saying, I have no flowers to offer to my bridegroom neither did he wear flowers for me i am but a poor girl and do you think my lord will be offended if i ask him to crown me as he was pleased to be crowned himself and then flowers represent virtues in those that wear them but my barren heart has produced nothing better than these she saw not with her blind eyes how her two companions snatched the wreaths from their heads to put on hers but a sign from the pontiff checked them and amidst moistened eyes she was led forth, all joyous, in her thorny crown, emblem of which the church has always taught, that the very queenship of virtue is innocence crowned by penance. End of section 30